Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Question me, Rose. Run for your life. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. When we first started Release the Geek, we wanted to do every interview live with a guest. We felt that it made for a better conversation experience, but it came with a drawback that we could only interview people we actually had physical access to, which limited the guests we could reach out to, especially those overseas. And we want to continue to provide you, dear listeners, great quality guests at all times. So we took the decision to trial an online interview. And our first online guest is author, speaker, and futurist, Rob Salkovitz. Rob is an internationally recognized expert in the intersection of digital media and social and business trends. Rob has worked with a range of organizations to help engage with specialized audiences, identify new opportunities, and articulate their vision for the future. In addition, Rob has written four books, including Comic-Con and The Business of Pop Culture, a book which uses SDCC as the backdrop in discerning what the drivers will be for the future of entertainment. Rob graciously found time in his schedule to chat to us about a range of topics, including some of the trends in pop culture conventions around the world, where the newest innovators of technology can be found, and we discuss future trends in the people management of pop culture events. We pass this to Franku and the Diva for the rating. Franku, what did the Diva have to say? The Diva has enjoyed this podcast and rates it completely salt-free. Thank you kindly to both Franku and the Diva for that rating, but for now, without any further ado, please join me, Les Allen, as we release The Geek with Rob Salkovitz. And now, we're releasing The Geek. What is your confession? Rob, let's... Let me, let me throw, to, throw you to the first question. What was your... Would you call yourself a geek? Absolutely. What was your path to geekdom? How did it start for you? I was into comics and superheroes when I was a little kid. Um, mm-hmm. From a very early age, I took inspiration from the art and storytelling. They just kind of captured my imagination. Uh, for a long time, I tried to make comics myself by drawing and writing. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, I got to the point where um, I, I had to make one of those my profession. And so uh, I chose writing, which I think right. may have been wise. Uh I would say, because I'm old, that I got into comics in the, I would say, early to mid-70s, and by my teenage years in the mid-80s, I was kind of uh, done with at least the comics I had been reading at that time, and put them behind me. Once in a while, when I was in college, I would take note of something like Watchmen or Dark Knight or or that sort of thing, Mm. but generally I wasn't that into it. Um, Later on, in the mid to late 90s, when I started doing professional work and was doing some work in the video game industry, writing scenarios for, for video games. Yes. And I realized that a lot of the inspiration that I got, and not just for video games, but also for any kind of audio video content that I was doing, digital multimedia and all of that stuff that was in the air at that time, the affinity that I had for that came from reading comics. And I thought I should probably get more in touch with this to understand what's going on now um so i sort of stuck my toe back into the waters sure at the stuff that was out there i went down to san diego comic-con in 1997 and then it was all downhill from there 
<laughs> when when you start, are you a Marvel a Marvel guy, a DC guy? What was your preference? I would say probably sixty percent DC, forty percent Marvel. Right. Okay, About it's a nice that. mix. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a zealot on either side, but I uh, gotcha. generally prefer. Uh, when you, when you mentioned that uh, uh, when you're a little bit older, you started touching on uh, Watchmen. And some of the more some of the more mature themes as far as comics were concerned, in this uh, that became sort of a progression in the in the late eighties, early nineties. That yes, you have your superhero saving the day and it's stopping a bank robbery and, and all the basic normal heroes journey type stuff. And then things started getting a bit deeper, a bit darker. Tales of the Dark Knight was there a natural progression path in the seventies for the comics that you read, or was it just? They were all pretty much the same, and we just enjoyed what we had. I mean, I think succeeding generations of creators came to comics with their own ideas, you know, in the sort of innocent days of the, the golden age. You have to remember a lot of the people that were doing those were, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old, you know, didn't have much worldly experience. They right. come back from World War II. Comics take a step forward in sophistication. The comics code hits. They take a step back. You know the the stuff that was going on in the in the 60s with Jack Kirby and Stan Lee creating a universe of connected uh, continuity was a step forward in the 70s. I think it was about bringing authentic characterization to familiar characters so that Green Arrow and Batman were suddenly very different personalities as opposed to being different shades of the same archetype. Right. Um, and, then, and then in the 80s, uh, Alan Moore in particular, but then all of the people that followed him in, um, started thinking through this in a in a more macro way, like what what does the world look like if there's superheroes in it, and how does that change our ordinary lives? And that led to stuff not only like, like Watchmen and all of the stuff that Alan Moore did, but also yes. um, Kingdom Come and Marvels and, and all of the great work that was done since then. Hmm. The, there's a, it's a common theme when we're talking about uh, uh, comics that uh, a lot of the people that we, we interview, they read comics growing up, and there was always the struggle around credibility of your interest. I remember having to justify that, hey, look, you might say that they're for kids, but they're drawn by adults, and look at the artwork and the stories are amazing, but... In the end, the, the, the final attempt to get credibility for the interest in reading comics generally comes around money, that these could be worth more, because that tends to be the one thing that everybody can kind of relate to. They understand the framework of money and that, oh, well, this comic is now $2 million or $100,000. When it comes to the idea of peak geek, which is a, I believe that's a, a, a phrase that you coined, and the acceptance of pop culture these days, do you? how do you feel about the idea that the credibility is actually coming from the cash and that's what's helping make pop culture a bit more mainstream these days? That's a, that's a complicated question and it's got a couple of different dimensions. I think that the collectability of comics helped the publishing industry at a certain moment um, when people were buying copies because they felt that way, you know, that, that they would appreciate in value. Yes. Um, and it also helps, honestly, the economy of the retailers because they buy the comics on a non-returnable basis and they need some confidence that, the, that their back stock is going to have value if they don't sell out sure. every issue, that maybe there'll be a collector that comes along that'll pick it up after the fact. So it's, so it's kind of intrinsic to the economy of the publishing side in a way that – I mean, I, I know that there's people that go out there and they'll buy a first edition of a book just because it's the first edition, but that's mm – -hmm. most people just read to read. Um, in comics, I think there's a lot more people that, that 
that collect and the presence of back issue dealers and original art dealers and stuff like that is also a s- super important part in the economy of conventions. S- so it's it's part of the industry in a way that it's not really part of other kinds of com- content businesses. Once it became a big money thing for Hollywood, then a different conversation came in, which is, you know, in the early 2000s, when the franchise content like X-Men and Spider-Man and all and Batman had established itself as, you know, like a motion picture, you know, tentpole uh, part of the movie industry. And then the then. Uh, studios would be going around looking for sleeper properties, and so you right. had, you know, a Hellboy, Hellboy movie, and you know, Ghost World, and and Whiteout, and you know, like all kinds of uh, things that you wouldn't think were natural properties. And so I think a lot of the money from uh, studios optioning every kind of comic content has really helped the creators a lot. I know creators who have, you know, put a down payment on their house from the option on a property that they developed that even never, even if the movie never gets made, uh, they still end up okay. So I think that's right. a good thing that, that the infusion of money, this isn't an industry that anybody in their right mind goes into to get rich. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the fact that there are economic opportunities beyond, you know, putting a tip jar on your website or, you know, getting a page rate from a publisher or something right. like that is good. Um, but I think that the, there is a, also a sense in the society that if if people are spending billions of dollars to make and see these movies or to go to comic conventions, then there must be something there. And it's attracting this sort of second and third tier of fans that are um, just attracted to the spectacle without really having the deep-seated affection for the content that... Yeah. That we grew up with, if you if you come from the from my generation, and where as you say it was sort of despised and under the covers, and mm-hmm. and something that you really needed to be committed to fundamentally, right. you know, to keep buying it. Now it's a lot easier to go walking down the street in a Green Lantern T-shirt, or you know, demonstrate some affinity with fandom because it means you're one of the cool kids, which is right, you know, and a very very interesting development. Well, that that idea of the the cool kids, you kind of touched on. The notion that uh, people who are not necessarily comic book readers, these are the periphery, but they're now wanting to come to events like San Diego Comic Con because they want to be part of these experiences. What to, what would you say around the people who say, well, Comic Con, it's it's not about comics anymore. It's been taken over. It's almost that uh, that some some fans are feeling affronted that the thing that they love is now a lot more popular but not necessarily for the right reasons. Is that something that's pretty common? Uh, yes. So a couple of things here. So first of all, the idea about Comic-Con and specifically San Diego Comic-Con to suggest that that has at, at one point in history was some kind of pure event only about comics publishing is ahistorical. That's not correct. So right. the, that even from the inception, a lot of these events would have you know, media guests, you know, even if it was like Adam West or something, because because there wasn't a lot of media to choose from, uh-huh. but they still brought in people that had a broader interest. That's That's been going on for a long time. Second, you know, there's a generational change in fandom, and not everybody 
you know, comics aren't on newsstands anymore. You have to go to comic book stores, which can be forbidding environments for certain people, particularly women. And so yes. the fact that there are more entry points into geek culture and that there's lots more ways, there's lots more content to be a fan of, there's lots more ways to express your fandom and to show up at these events. I mean, the more the merrier. It's good for the, and, you know, everybody's going to have their own, you know, uh, ideas of what, uh, you know, of how to interact with this stuff. And I don't, I think suggesting that there's a right way and a wrong way is not, not a great, uh, you know, plan, <laughs> you know, sure. either for life or for the, or for the business. I think the people that do that have their, have personal agendas and, and, and things that are not, uh, have nothing to do with the good of the business or anything like that. Sure. I'm going to step away from pop culture a little bit because you've done more than just write books on, on pop culture. Um, you're, uh, you've been, would you say you've been labeled the term, uh, a futurist in relation to your writings? Yeah. In the, in the work that I've done outside of the, of the comic stuff that what brought me to this from the perspective that I've got is I was working in, as I said, I was working in technology, you know, in the early nineties, I was involved in various tech entrepreneurship stuff in, in that era and in the two thousands. And then I, uh, because I'm from Seattle and and we have a company here called Microsoft that uh, spends a lot of money. Heard, I think we've heard of them, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Go, whatever happened to those guys? Um, <laughs> they spend a lot of money on on outside experts trying to clue them in on on stuff that's going on in various ways. And I was involved in a project. Um, one of the last things that Bill Gates did when he was still running the company actively was a thing called the New World of Work, where we looked at all of the ways that technology is interacting with um, culture and business and politics and the economy and the environment and all of this stuff, and sort of came up with these future scenarios for what you know ways that this could develop. And that really opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking about the future, technology, the relationship between, you know, entertainment and culture and the things that motivate us and the stuff that's going on economically and technologically. So I, that's kind of my niche, whether I apply it to comics or to other business issues or marketing or what have you, that's, that's my professional sure. occupation. In 2010, you wrote a book, uh, Young World Rising, which is almost, I think Daniel Pink referred to it as like a call to arms for new youth entrepreneurs and opportunities to reshape uh, business, reshape the world based around technological advances. The the hubs that you would see from from that perspective, uh, being that we're based in Johannesburg and obviously uh, Africa's Africa's right here, and what we're seeing from mobile technology development. Are you uh, the ideas of the hubs that you would have seen as far as innovation ten years ago? Are they still on track? Where are those areas? Have there have there been any new areas um, geographically that have popped up that uh, are leading innovation? Well, first of all, thanks for mentioning that. I'm actually very very proud of that book and uh, that at the moment that I wrote it was about, you know, I was, I was despairing in 2010 that, mm. that political change and collective action at the political level hadn't really brought about the kind of progressive disruption that we need to solve some of our biggest problems. And then I started right. looking around the world at places that were not the United States that didn't even have, you know, the infrastructure or the economy that we have where mm -hmm. ordinary 
people are coming out of the woodwork to solve this stuff. One of the places I was looking at was various parts of, of Africa, um, both North and South, and um, uh, at the time I was uh, focused on uh, there was some really interesting stuff in Ghana and Nigeria. There was some really interesting stuff in Kenya and, of course, in South Africa. And it put me in touch with a, a community of entrepreneurs, uh, mostly in the Cape area, right. um, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it's also in, in Johannesburg as well, um, where specifically on the mobile stuff, like the mobile commerce, I would say Africa is is the leader in that area and a lot of the technologies coming out of uh, you know that are being adopted elsewhere in the world originated, you know, in in your corner of the world, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty cool. So I think the whole under the radar, the 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 locus of innovation has really changed, and so you know places like Africa, Latin America, South Asia, all of these places that used to be peripheral are now increasingly central. Right. So that's a that's a that's a cool thing. I haven't kept up on it as much as as I should, but it's. Uh, Great, great, great uh, issue. I'm more. I'm more now shedding a tear for 2010, Rob, thinking about the political climate and the difficulty yeah, right. then, and to the political climate as currently exists in 2017. The 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 current political, I don't know. How do we be fair, Rob? Situation in uh, in the United States at the moment to to help take advantage. You've got Seattle where you've got some amazing tech companies and you've got Silicon Valley, you've got some amazing tech companies in the United States who are trying to drive things forward. Is the political climate there at the moment conducive to helping grow that? Or do you need to step away from uh, a lot of, red, almost I'm thinking red tape, a lot of structures to try and find new ways to innovate? You know, I mean, I think that, that in terms of innovation, the U.S. has pluses and minuses. We have an extremely favorable financial environment, and it's very easy to get funding. You know, more so than in other in other parts of the world. So, you can, so there's huge amounts of capital available for ideas here. Um, the The biggest problem for innovation isn't necessarily government policy, although it's becoming problematic but the the big problem is big companies that don't you know they pay a lot of lip service to oh we love innovation we love openness until somebody comes and competes with them then they don't like it as much anymore right. and so i think where we're seeing the problem on the government side is the ability to rein in monopoly power um and that's not just in the us it's in all you know developed countries and things like that then along with that is like the crumbling of social fabric and you know um uh, civic society, and I think that's not unique to the U.S. I know it's happening in South Africa, in parts of Europe, and all over the place. So it's you know it's a, it's an unfortunate time to live in, and by this is I think the last gasp of the 20th century generation in leadership, and that hopefully at some point those people will be out of the picture. And the rising generation will have their say, but at the moment, it's not. Uh, that's not what's happening. Right. It's a it's a conversation I like to have amongst friends. The uh, the the five, ten, twenty year look forward as far as technology, the the move towards the singularity, those sorts of things. Do you have more of a dystopian view or a uh, passively hopeful view of where technology and humanity will be blending going forward? 
So the technique that I use for the future forecasting is called scenario planning. And the idea is that you look at a range of different possibilities because there's a lot of questions that you don't know what the answers to are going to be. So you have to sort of figure out what is your question and then ask how it plays in, in different kinds of futures. So that's what I did in the in the Comic-Con book. And I'm you know, looking yes. at a very narrow question of where the comic industry is going. Well, the um, four paths to the future. The, yeah, exactly. When I was... Um, when I was doing this work for Microsoft in the in the two thousands, uh, the we had a scenario that was uh, I forget what we called it, Road Warrior, Frontier Friction, or something like that, which was oh. sort of an edge case where what happens if social norms degrade? What happens if we retreat from globalism and embrace this kind of you know ethnocentric nationalism and and all of this stuff? And we considered we thought we rated it as as less likely, but we thought we should at least have this on the radar in case mm. signs start to point that way. And of course, it's an extremely challenging environment. Um, but the upside is that you know the, you might get more focus on local stuff. You might get a you know a retreat from the sort of smug certainties of globalism to a more you know human-centered economic approach. Like there are some upsides to it, but generally speaking, it was not a it was not a good uh, it was not a good future to want to live in. And it's mm-hmm. and it that's the that's the future that signs are pointing to right now. So. Right, no, Road Warrior. Not- you've automatically made me think Mad Max. So, right, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 headed for the Thunderdome. Not a problem. I'm I'm right there. I want my razor bladed boomerang. Uh, I am I am actually Australian. I'm a, I'm a transplant here to Johannesburg. So you've you've touched a you've you've touched my heart there <laughs> with with Mad Max there, Rob. As, as as far as technology and pop culture at large, we've got the preponderance of superhero movies. You've already mentioned that. Studios were just trying to find any sort of uh, any sort of uh, character that might be able to translate and be be a sleeper hit. When it comes to conventions, one of the things about being at San Diego is the exclusivity. I'm here. I got preview night. I got to Hall H, etc. How uh, do you think technology will help? bring more of those experiences to everybody worldwide or is it still going to be a case of you want to be here you want to have uh the experience of being on the floor well i think san diego is is in a world by itself even though there are Mm -hmm. other comic conventions i just got back from new york comic con a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. and they say they sold two hundred thousand tickets um which you know as a number is a bigger number than than san diego likes to talk about although um Mm -hmm. Uh, it depends on how you count, but in any case, yes. uh, so there are there are convention experiences available, and I wouldn't be surprised if Read Pop, Read Pop has been kind of on a shopping spree, and they just bought uh, um, MCM. MCM. Yeah. yeah. In, in uh, I had that story on Forbes on Monday, um, and they're, you know, they're trying to do that. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they come knocking at the door at South Africa if you have a if you have an event of of uh, sufficient scale that they would be interested in. Um, so they're so they're they're bringing the convention experience to more people around the world. Um, if what you want is to, you know, see the cast of The Walking Dead and you know, uh, you know, have that sort of uh, interactions with creators and artist Sally and you know exhibit hall and you know film previews and all of that stuff is coming to more and more parts of the world. Um, whether anybody can, you know, San Diego, again, it's like, it's like one of those things like the, like the Sundance film festival or, um, uh, burning man, or, you know, like one of these things, it's, it's a destination 
it's hard to get to its it remains the media center because I think the media likes to have one place to go to get those stories. And they've decided at San Diego comic-con, uh, partly because it's right down the street from Hollywood, relatively speaking. Yeah. So it's going to be that unless San Diego does something to cut its own throat, I think it's going to remain that kind of an event and your odds of getting there are going to keep getting smaller unless they, um, dramatically expand their facilities. But, but the convention experience itself is getting way more democratized for sure. Right. I, just as a slight digression, uh, we've chatted uh, a few times to Raymond D. Feist. He lives just around the corner. He's at uh, Del Mar, um, and he's always going to Comic-Con. And we've had conversations about the idea of, will Comic-Con move from San Diego? Uh, what's this? And he's, he's just said, no, it's not going to go. Because even if it does, the, the fact that there's a facility there that's so large that time of year, somebody else would just step in and do something similar. Do you have any particular feelings or any guesses as to where you think uh, the long-term future of SDCC might go? So the thing about San Diego Comic-Con is that unlike Reed Pop or many of the others, that they are a nonprofit and they're governed by their board of directors and their existing management who have been mm -hmm. on the job since the 80s. Right. They, are, they, they live in San Diego. They grew up with the convention in San Diego. They can't commit long-term specifically because the hotels can't lock in the rates long term. Right. So it's just a business issue that they have to continue to negotiate availability of the hotel rooms for the attendees and so to maintain their bargaining position they have to you know resume negotiations every couple of years. Sure. Um but I, I would say that, yeah, barring, uh, you know, they always keep their options open. I mean, there are strategic thinkers about this stuff. I, they have looked at, I know for a fact that they've, you know, considered other places. They have WonderCon in Anaheim, which is a pretty mm -hmm. good facility. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's not out of the question, but I would say it would be, it, to me, it seems unlikely that they would do that. Would you say that um, Disney's move of the D23 convention, um, this year it was a week before San Diego? Uh, whereas last year it was actually in August, it was almost a month behind. Would you see that as a move to potentially say, well, no, 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 you can't come here. This is, and besides, all the hotels at uh, around Anaheim are all geared for Disneyland, wouldn't they be for for summer holidays? So I think the yeah, I think that's th that that's correct as far as it goes. I think there's a the bigger issue is that these big brands, you know, have a have a fraught relationship with San Diego because they need it. And it's independent. They don't control it. And they see all the value that it brings. And they say, why couldn't we just do this ourselves? Right. And so there's this enormous temptation to sort of fence off different fandoms and say, okay, we're doing a Disney con. We're doing a Hasbro con. We're doing a you know, DC Warner's con. And um, that, and if they do that in such a way that, it, you know, that they directly compete with San Diego, then they're going to fragment that audience and they're, they're going to lose the – the critical mass that comes with everything being smushed together like that. Right. And also it's, it's all going to have the flavor of being sort of a company town controlled event. And it's not going to be as appealing to the media. The media doesn't want to be a captive audience to press releases and announcements and, and stuff like right. that where the event, where the event host is the one setting the agenda that, that that's, that's a less appealing thing than just the, what looks like an organic event at San Diego. So at, I think they're all tempted by doing this. It, some of them have talked themselves into thinking this is a good idea, and they're probably going to go ahead with it. And I just, to me, it just looks like a very bad idea. Mm -hmm. 
The preponderance now of of conventions, you mentioned your Forbes article where you talk about ReadPop. So ReadPop is a subsidiary of Read Conventions, a, um, a gigantic company globally. ReadPop is the uh, sub-company uh, that just deals with pop culture conventions. So they own Oz Comic Con in Australia. They own the PAX events. And now with MCM, they've got London Comic Con. I think the only company on ReadPop's scale would be the company behind Fan Fan Expo out of Canada. Would that be yes. fair? Yes. Uh, yeah, so there's Informa, which is so Read Exhibitions is the part of is is the big event company that owns uh, uh, ReadPop, and Read Exhibitions is itself a subsidiary of Read Elsevier, which is this enormous publishing content media company. So, you know, uh, ReadPop is a you know fingernail on a giant, um, right. and it, Informa is is also a huge trade show company, and they do most of their stuff with like you know, world of concrete or something like that, you know, like, like trade shows that have nothing to do with, uh, pop culture at all. And that are very lucrative. So they run fan expo, fan expo has shows in Canada and yeah, they're at that scale. They've been acquiring, um, Greg Topalian, one of the, one of the principals at read pop who created mm. New York comic convention recently started his own company called left field media. And he got some financial backing for that. Um, there's wizard world here in the States, which runs, yes. Uh, regional conventions at at second tier cities. Um, Haven't they scaled they have back? A, have they scaled back? They've got issues, um, right? Operational management issues and things like that. And also, it's you know they've made some be- poor choices on on a bunch of things. So it's uh, they don't they 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 have an ill favored look. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, and then, but then there's other like the the guy who started. Um, uh, Wizard World, Garab Seamus, um, recently announced he's got his own company called Ace Entertainment, and they're trying to do conventions in uh, like um, hockey stadiums and you know and uh, oh wow um, yeah so they're they're using a sort of a different kind of facility and a different kind of model. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's what the fandom wants, but it's an interesting idea. So you know, like I, I mean, I think that the, that um, a few years ago I did a, a economic study on behalf of Eventbrite, which is a ticketing company, yes, um, to sort of size up the economic impact of this event, and they their data showed that there was half a million dollars, I'm sorry, half a billion with a B dollars in gross ticket sales alone. So just the tickets to a thousand fan events in North America in 2013 totaled about $500 million. US. And that's four years ago. That was four years ago. But when you look at any individual event, so the convention center in Jacksonville, Florida is hosting a two-day comic convention, they'll do an economic impact study to figure out how much did money did this convention bring to town. Sure. So the so what I found is that the average multiple of the um, the ticket sales to the economic impact based on these reports was about five to eight times. Wow. So uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, eight eight to ten times the uh, wow. economic impact. So that gives you, if you multiply that out, that gives you a four to five billion dollar footprint of this industry of conventions in mm. North America in 2013. So and I think on the basis uh, of that, a lot of money is coming in because a lot of people see a number like that and they're like, okay, we need to get in on this. Um, Reed has a first mover advantage because they've been doing this for a little while. They've got experience with events. They've been building their team out. So they've got uh, a good uh, running start 
on on some of the others. But I think that's what's motivating a lot of the the money coming in right now. Well, with with Readpomp doing acquisitions, uh, with Informa looking at potential acquisitions, is there a a couple of major players dominating the space? Do you see a potential problem of homogenization of the type of events that they're all going to be pretty much the same, same wherever you go in the world? Or is that initially a good thing to give everybody who's not had access to these sorts of things uh, a taste of what you would get if you went to New York Comic Con anyway? Well, so I mean, I think that the that the locally run show that is, um, you know, between ten thousand and forty thousand attendees, depending on the on the size of your market, um, that's trying to get a couple of celebrities in that is a for-profit company um you know that's that's trying to create a comic-con experience and is independently run and managed those are on the endangered species list because i think that there's a lot of consolidation and competition going on for that type of show and those are going to get rolled those are going to get rolled up one way or another um or driven out by the by the bigger players but there's a huge opportunity both for specialty shows and for smaller independent shows. Like there's been a flowering, at least in the U.S., of um, sort of arts festivals and small press shows. We have one coming up here in Seattle called uh, Short Run um, in a couple of weeks that probably will draw 1,200 people, you know, soaking wet and that's you know it's not it's not going to be a it's not going to be a huge crowd but it's Mm -hmm. it's a great opportunity for independent self-published people to get their stuff in front of audiences there's conventions for special interest we have one here called geek girl con which is obviously focused on women women and fandom and, and things like that independently run independently managed um there's there's uh, I know that there's one for uh, there's one called Solcon which is for Latino creators there's uh, oh. all kinds of stuff for for people of color so there's so if you want to address a particular niche either demographically or a fan interest so if you just want to do you know uh, um, you know Buffy the Vampire Slayer if you just want to do um, like you know an old comics collector show. Yes. Plenty of room in the market for those sorts of things. It's the big all-up kind of shows where it's either go big or go home. It's the fact that the that pop culture is actually so broad. There are so many areas that you could just pick a sub-area and run your own niche event, and you're going to appeal and get a, a dedicated base to that. So there is an opportunity there at the at the middle to lower end. Well, this is an artifact of the peak geek. I mean, in the in the late '90s, if you were trying to grow your show to be, you know, twenty thousand people, you couldn't do that with just comics because there weren't enough fans. So it's like, okay, right. we're going to do comics and science fiction and gaming and all of these sort of, you know, adjacent nerddoms. And yeah. you know, if we if we patch enough of them together, then you get, a, you know, an event that will attract the kind of people, you know, the, the attendance that you need to get a bigger facility. And then you can get Stan Lee, or you can get Kevin Smith, or you know, like you can get the next tier up of celebrity you know and that that was kind of the bootstrap now there's such a big footprint for this stuff that the um you can appeal just to one fandom and and immediately get you know 25 or 30,000 people just for that if that's if that's your strategy right there's uh, there was a podcast that I heard uh, a few months ago Steve Ballmer uh who now owns the LA Clippers uh in Los Angeles the basketball team he was talking about uh, I mean, he's obviously ex-Microsoft, so he's coming from a, a technology point of view and how that technology could start affecting the broadcast and the, the the experience around basketball games. 
that he was talking about the ideas of potentially being able to have cameras small enough that the players, you could actually see it from the, the game from the player's point of view. The Considering your, your knowledge with tech, do you think that um, those sorts of deep interactions, that there is going to be a space for that um, from a sports perspective, from any sort of entertainment, entertainment perspective going forward? Is that something that will happen, that we will transition to, or will it... Will it be leapfrogged into something like a true virtual reality type situation, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of potential for that stuff. I've, I have seen four or five business plans for online virtual Comic Cons uh, floating around. I'm actually an advisor to one of these ventures. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that's a direction a lot of people are going. I participated in a in a virtual reality Comic Con in Second Life uh, last year. Oh, right. Um, there was like 90 or 100 people that they, it was like the limits of what the technology could do. And frankly, it was sure. a, not, not, a, not a fully satisfactory technology experience right now, but right. They're, they're working on that. But to me, the big technological challenge of a comic convention is, or you know, any of these pop culture conventions, is any given moment, you know, you're there for the weekend and there's 150 things to do competing for your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the, the heartbreaking thing at, San Diego is you see these people lined up for hours and hours and hours to get into one panel, mm. you know, that they want to see. They're only there for maybe some of them may only be there for a day and that's their that's their thing. That's what they want to do. If there was some way to that you could have better time management or better, you know, like basically check into the panel um you know, ahead of time, or if you had like a hundred points that you could allocate and say, this one is my number one thing. So I'm going to allocate all hundred points to go to see that panel or, you know, 50, 50 or 10 to each of, you know, 10 different things, you know, something like that. So that you as a fan could allocate your time better, that you know that you're going to get the one experience that you're really looking for, but you're not wasting a lot of time where you, you know, cause everybody that's standing in line isn't on the exhibit floor, buying stuff from vendors. They're not sure. talking to artists They're you know, there's the opportunity opportunity cost is immense. So mm-hmm. a technology that could manage that or a technology that also could help uh, traffic on the floor. So like uh, yes. geofencing and, and mobile technologies and things like that, that create enticements. I was involved in a venture a, a year or two ago that was doing... Um, they were doing sort of a like a, a Pokemon Go style game. It was before Pokemon Go came out, but it was that kind of a game. It was like a mobile geo you know, uh, interactive game, um, in conventions. And one of the things it was doing is that if you were a vendor and you hosted one of the beacons, uh, you would actually be drawing traffic to your side of the floor because all of the people that were playing that game would be looking for something in your area. So I think there's, there's, there's some interesting strategies that you could do that aren't, that don't seem too intrusive or heavy handed to the attendees. Um, but that could help the facilities that could help um, vendors that could help the organizers and all of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm very deeply involved in a lot of that stuff. So the idea of gamification in crowd flow, that you could actually encourage gamification to move the crowds as you need them. Uh, I've been to Comic-Con a couple of times and Saturday's just a, Saturday's a nightmare. I thought Thursday was bad and then I hit Saturday and just your, your comment about lines where a line has to jump across the hallway to then continue down along the wall due to to fire hazards and restrictions. So people are already in that play space looking to 
help manage these flows better and look at better time allocation? Oh, for sure. Like a lot of that stuff. Um, now I'm working with another ticketing company now called ShowClicks, and they're very deeply involved yes. in trying to figure out how to do sub-ticketing for, um, you know, for different events. Not not as a paid thing, but just as a attendance counting thing. Also, the other frustration is that if you're lined up for Hall H, and yes. you know you're you're standing there in the line, and you're like 300 people from the front of the line, but you didn't make it in. I guarantee you that there's 300 spaces in that room that they're not, but nobody can count every person that's coming in. Sure. A a camera with facial recognition can do that. It's trivial. It's a, you know, so the AI system behind that is like looking at everybody going in. It knows when that person has left to go to the bathroom or something like that. You know, not, not in an intrusive way, but just in a way of saying, okay, we know down to the number that there are 260 spots left here. So let's move the line forward 300 or, you know, 260 people so that everybody that wants to get into that panel that can physically be accommodated in that room can do it with no margin for error. I mean, there's no worse feeling than being the last person and then the velvet rope comes up and it's like, too bad you didn't make it in. So if you yeah. can, if you could, you know, at a very personal level, you don't want to be that guy. So any, any technology that can help that is good. So that's, yeah. that's another area where they can do it. Right. You as, you as a geek yourself, what, what aspects of fandom are you? Do you get passionate about that? Actually, sometimes it might it might get a bit difficult to keep the professional side uh, away from your your passionate interest. Uh, you get to speak at New York Comic Con. You get to speak at San Diego Comic Con. You're invited guests to these events, and you're getting to meet these people. Where do you? Where are your passions now? And what are the what are the passionate experiences you get to have when you're at these events? <sighs> So I'm really passionate about the artwork. Uh, it's always been the the thing. I like the stories, but you know, like the the mythology of superheroes sort of comes and goes, and the, sure. you know, um, but the people that can really you know capture my imagination visually, um, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz comes to mind as a yes. as a guy mm-hmm. that uh, I've gotten to know Bill a little bit, um, you know, just through the the course of things and he's he's like a fascinating guy but he's just like his art is just continuously inspiring he's just great um uh there was a um a graphic novel published earlier this year called my favorite thing is monsters um which is which is amazingly transformative in all kinds of ways it's instantly one of the five best graphic novels i've ever read but one of the just offhandedly, if it was just the artwork and the story was nothing, it would still be worth having. It's just gorgeously done. It's like um, uh, colored ballpoint pen crosshatching to create these incredibly vivid and evocative scenes and stuff like that. So I'm kind of an amateur artist, and you know, it's like I've been trying to to get better at that. And consequently, it's like I'm the the techniques that these people have mastered and the ways that they use that. Uh, most of my time at the conventions is in artist Sally or at the artist original sure. art dealer booth, uh, trying to trying to get some cool stuff from my walls. We actually had a podcast a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have a couple of people who've worked in comic stores. They're uh, um, big comics fans. We get them together and we'll throw a uh, throw a discussion topic down. And one topic we threw down a couple of weeks ago was you had an unlimited budget, which artist would you want to commission which character so you could have any artist at all draw any artwork any scene from any of the uh, 
any comic title or any piece of artwork. Uh, Bill came up a number of times. I just threw a lot of money at Bill's work and said, yep, I'd want him to draw this, 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 and this. Do you, if I throw that question to you, you have an unlimited budget and you could pick any artist you like and then they could draw any particular character you wanted. What combination would you pick? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've... Hey, listen, so we've, got already... another, we've got another 15 minutes on the podcast. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of the artists that I like, like I like Dave McKean is another, is yes. another guy. Is, it sort of uh, pushes the boundaries. Uh, uh, James Jean, I think, is very, uh, very creative. There's, a, there's this Korean uh, guy named Kim Jong-Hee. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if you've uh, come across him yet. He's the guy is like a freak of nature. He draws these incredible scenes. He works with a brush pen, no penciling. He does perfect characters, shading, machinery, architecture, animals, backgrounds, perspective. Like everything is letter perfect, and it just comes out of his head. And he'll start in the middle of the page, and he'll draw out this gigantic thing. I guess if I could see Jack Kirby's Fourth World drawn by Kim Jong-e. That would be, uh, that would be kind of an interesting uh, combination. All right, quick Google search. I found a couple of his uh, pieces of artwork and it's, it's quite stunning. I'm actually going to, uh, to make sure when I put it up in the show notes that I'll put a point uh, to go check out his work. That- he's like Paul Pope meets Mobius meets you know uh, um, Robert Crumb. I mean, it's like he's got so many different things going on, and it just comes. It's, he doesn't. I mean, obviously, he has worked his ass off to make it yeah. look like it's not hard work. But if you see him at a convention, he's just sitting there drawing this stuff, and he's got a projection screen. I remember the first time I saw him, I walked past, him and it's like, you got to be kidding me! Like that's crazy. So anyway, that's. Enough raving about him, but that that would be that would be a- <laughs> that would be all right. No, that's a, that's a fair response to the question. Thank you very much. What um, are you keen for, Thor or Justice League? Which one are you more keen for? Thor. Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Yeah. When's it kick off I in the US? It starts here to it starts here tomorrow. Yeah, it's coming. I think it's tomorrow or something like that. I I probably won't be the first person in the world to see it, but um, but it's definitely on the list. Um, my my enthusiasm for uh, Justice League is uh, limited, but uh, the oh. Wonder Woman was a step in the right direction. Let's put it that yes. way. Yes. All right. So do you not? Do you not have as much confidence in the DC Extended Universe as the MCU? That's fair to say. Uh, I've, I've I've written fairly extensively. I did a big piece on Forbes about how uh, uh, DC is ruining its the brand of Superman to sell tickets to, uh, you know. Batman v Superman, and which I thought was a complete disaster creatively, and so yeah, I mean, they, they, I have a lot of problems with DC strategy. There's there is hope that they're moving in the right direction, and I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but they have one extremely, yeah, they had one extremely commercially successful and creatively successful movie in the last few years, and that was Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. and it makes me wonder why uh, Patty Jenkins isn't in charge of more stuff. On the on the creative side, since right. she's the one who's proven that she can thread that needle when others are having a more difficulty with it. Does DC need a Kevin Feige? Oh, they've got one. They've got Jeff Johns, and what his well, yeah, what his only yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I mean, you know that he that that uh, I don't think I don't think like the the visual pro- aspect of DC 
extended universe is the problem. It's the it's the story side and getting the the tone of the characters and understanding what makes DC characters and the DC universe appealing and different. And they, I think they kind of got went down the wrong path on that one. Jeff Johns, when I hear him talk about it, says the right thing. So whether he actually has the power organizationally to to you know make that vision what we see on the screen remains to be seen the the i'd forgotten about jeff's appointment um uh, in relation to the the kevin feige comparison the the fact that it's uh it's warner brothers uh as opposed to kevin and his position like directly dealing with marvel um is that a potential cause for consternation on uh, on jeff's side yeah, the internal politics on Warner Brothers are somewhat opaque, and and they don't look like they're um, – put it this way. A couple of weeks ago, there was an amazing article looking at all of this um, from Abraham Reisman at Vulture, who I would enthusiastically recommend that you get him on your podcast as well because sure. he's a really brilliant guy and has a lot to say on all of this stuff. So he did this big exploration about what's going on with Warner Brothers, and he talked to Jeff Johns, he talked to Diane Nelson, who doesn't talk about these things that much. She's the president of DC Entertainment. Um, and, you know, was sort of went, walked through all of this stuff about what's going on in the movie side. And I thought, wow, this, after reading this article, this really gives me hope that uh, DC understands what their problems are. And this was the article that they really needed out there before Justice League because it's the kind of thing that w- that any fan that, that loves DC and wants them to succeed in this wants to hear them say. So I thought they must, they must like, love this. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really love it. They, in fact, really didn't love it. And so it makes me think, uh, what, what's, what's going on there that – you know, there, there's still, there's still, I think, a disconnect between one one part of that organization and another. Sure. I don't have any special knowledge of that, but it's it's evident to me from what's going on that that's right. that's probably true. Right. Before we uh, we're closing in on the hour, but before we wrap up, uh, a slight divergence away again from pop culture. Uh, you've written a lot of articles um, in relation to data, in relation to social media, in relation to artificial intelligence from a, a futurist perspective. Uh, this is an incredibly nebulous question and yeah, I don't know if we're going to have the time for it. The idea of data being free, you've written uh, articles on startups needing to get access to data to be able to start working on stuff. Um, I don't even know if I can try and tie this into Equifax and repositories of data and people getting access to the data and uh, limitations on data. Should data be free? Should there be greater access to data worldwide? Uh, it depends on what kind of data. I mean, obviously, people's personal data is... Uh, mm-hmm. So the, 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 the short answer is that the way that we protect data right now is kind of screwed up, and there are some better solutions to that that are coming. So it gives me some hope that w- that you may be able to share data sets with, with different levels of privilege so that so that it's right. open, the stuff that should be public is mo- most easily public and shareable, and the stuff that is confidential can be exposed in the same data set, but if you don't have permission to see it, then you don't see that data. Right. Um, so I think I think technology is, is gradually figuring that out, 
But um, in the meantime, it's been a bumpy road. One thing I would say about data in relationship to pop culture is that, um, and especially the comics and gaming business, is that I think a lot of executive decisions are made with a set of pre, um, you know, preconceived notions on the part of the uh, decision makers, because a lot of these people came out of geek culture themselves, and they've sort of rose right. to the top, and they want to see, you know, now that they're running the company, they get to they get to call the shots the way that they would want to do it. The problem is that the fandom has changed so much from the 80s and 90s, or or before when these guys were were you know, first getting involved in it, that those decisions like reflect old realities. And I think data could really open that up. Um, one of the things I found with show clicks is that fully 50% of convention attendees are female. And that actually the younger you go on the demographic scale, the more dramatically female that audience gets. So if you're looking at, 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 uh, you know, 13 to 18 year old, that's probably going to be about, uh, 60% female at this point. My, my background, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so having data slap you in the face with that might be a way to break <laughs> some of these people out of their mm. of their ideas. Is oh, this doesn't sell, or we have to make stuff for eleven year old boys because they're the core audience. And it's like, no, not really, not anymore. And so, um, as somebody that wants the industry to survive, I think they need to start acknowledging. And I, th and I think they are. I mean, it's not as big a problem as it was five years ago. My background before I got into to my pop culture work and stuff with GeekXP is business intelligence data analytics ah. and one of the things that uh, comes up when you're when you're talking and doing presentations is the idea that the assumed conventional wisdom um, it's generally wrong once you start looking at data sets um, that's where you start finding uh, the realities so the idea that 50% on average the convention attendees are women and then as you get younger, it actually skews more to women that they're yes. so yeah, having having that data and that data that data is is uh not well known, I'm guessing. It just needs to get in front of the right people. And the other thing is that if you're looking for social media to amplify and get your content in front of people and do all the lovely things that social media does, women are more likely to be hubs of uh you know nodes in a network where where if you hit the right influencer you can reach a lot more people um right. and, you know and and depending on the social media like if you look at instagram or tumblr or stuff like that like these are communities mostly of super engaged women fans creating content creating discussion and you know so again you need you need a uh, the right tool to observe that and come to the right conclusions about it but at least the right tool is is becoming available right excellent um we are coming close to the the end of our time rob uh at release the geek we like to ask each of our guests uh for a pearl of wisdom uh some lesson or some pointer that they can pass on to the people listening to help give them a bit of inspiration and in getting along on doing whatever they're doing do you have something that you could share with the listeners in that regard? Sure. I have been a lifetime uh, geek and enthusiast, and th that probably there was a time when 12 or 13-year-old me would have been delighted to you know, work in the comic book industry. Mm -hmm. um, I have found that it has been much more um, fruitful and uh, fulfilling 
to be adjacent to the industry, not work for any particular comic publisher or stuff like that, develop my own independent perspective and expertise in areas not related to that, and then come back and apply that to the to the business. Um, it, it, it makes for much better conversations with the people that I admire, and you know I've become friends, you know, with a lot of these a lot of these folks on the basis of where I'm coming from, which is what I'm good at, um, rather than rather than sort of struggling up the the chain. If you're creative and you want to do stuff in the in the comics business, probably the best thing to do with the state of the industry right now is to do your own work, try and get it out there. And then let that, then you know, like when you're sufficiently um, established, then come to them and say, okay, here's the project that we want to do, um, right. rather than rather than just sort of submit yourself into the machine, because right. it is becoming a lot more of a machine now than it ever used to be, especially for artists. Right. Rob Salkovitz, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate you taking an hour out of your time to chat to us. Um, thank you so much for the insights, and uh, we really do appreciate it. My pleasure. And if your listeners are interested in the stuff that I'm doing, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Salk. Yes. Uh, my website is robsalkowitz.com. Um, and I write regularly for both Forbes and ICV2. So you can look in both places um, for my current uh, doings. And I have a couple we'll of books be... coming out next year. We can talk about that another time. Oh, excellent. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, uh, we link to our guests Twitter feed and website during the show notes uh, through the show notes so we'll be making sure we spread the word and yeah we'd love to have a chat to you when the, the books are, uh, are are about to drop next year very good thank you so thank much you. lovely thanks a lot that was Release the Geek the official podcast of Geek XP what the chain of command is it's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in rut and command here to contact the show, you can email us at releasethegeek, one word, at geekxp.co.za. Thanks for listening. I'll be back.